0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Big Tent, where political merchants come to trade. Hosted by Circus Bazaar Magazine and produced by Circus Bazaar Productions, where truth is stranger than fiction. Good
1: evening, my fellow
0: citizens. Ich bin ein violiner. Join the progressive body. we had a problem
1: here. Obviously, <laughs> being a woman in public life. An iron Burton has descended across the country.
0: Hi there people, welcome to episode 4 of Circus Bazaar Magazine's The Big Tent Podcast by Circus Bazaar Productions. This will be our final episode of the year. We've had a lot of fun this year in developing this little product and it's our intention to double our output in 2019 by releasing 8 podcasts. We're now available on iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Google Play and Spotify. Further, if you're interested in our historically and politically focused magazine, you can visit circusbazaar.com. And if you want to understand more about our commercial operations, be sure to visit circusbizarreproductions.com. Both of these links will be left in the description. Last month, you might have heard of three relatively unknown academics, James Lindsay, Peter Boghossian and Helen Pluckrose, that busted their way to prominence in the Western world's ongoing culture war by submitting academically compromised articles into highly influential and peer-reviewed scholarly journals. Fed up with what they referred to as grievance studies and the corruption of scholarship, they went out to prove that the standards by which certain disciplines within the humanities, namely identity-driven fields such as gender studies, were so politicised that they were, in several cases, preferred to accept almost anything, no matter how absurd, so long as it conferred to their preconceived political outlook. What resulted was a new insight into an area of society that, rather than functioning as an institution of impartial scientific inquiry, has been in its application a vehicle for the propagation of monopolitical and dogmatic ideologies that have been growing in social influence for decades. Who can say with a straight face these days that the Western world has not taken on a kind of inquisitory culture in recent years? A culture that is drifting from one in which the ultimate judgment of worth was based on the individual to one in which we all can be arbitrarily judged based on an ever more fragmented set of divided identity groups that compete for social power over each other, the currency of which is historical and social grievance. There's a fair dose of hilariosity in all this, though. I mean, consider an academic paper whose formal hypothesis is as follows that dog parks are rape condoning spaces and a place of rampant canine rape culture and systematic oppression against the oppressed dog, through which human attitudes to both problems can be measured. This provides insight into training men out of the sexual violence and bigotry to which they are prone. Then consider that this paper was celebrated and picked as one of 12 2018 papers to undergo special publication for the 25th anniversary of the journal in question. In my view, the very core of what these three people have achieved is to help society redefine how we categorize these fields of study. They've popularized the terms applied postmodernism and grievance studies to great effect. Partially redefining these fields of study under such umbrella terminology enables us to put them in their proper context and helps us not to confuse the very valuable and objective scientific inquiry you can of course find within these disciplines with the political activism and ideology. So, to discuss this further, we have James Lindsay on the podcast, who is one-third of this trio, is directly responsible for this mess. He's a physicist, a mathematician, and author of several books, including Everybody Is Wrong About God, Life in Light of Death, and dot, 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 infinity plus God equals folly. So, without further ado, here, let's go. Okay, James Lindsay, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Come um, the first thing I want to do, I want to kick this off with a, a quite serious question. There's um someone that's been causing me a little bit of a lack of sleep over all of this. And so I wanted to ask you something directly. Is the penis a social construct and does it cause climate change?
1: <laughs> um, obviously, yes. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of serious things we could say in response to that. But uh, yeah, the, definitely the penis was written to be a social construct that causes climate change and that kind of kicked us off doing this um, expose we've done of, of what we call grievance
0: studies. Yeah, that was my icebreaker. I haven't even tried to do anything funny on this podcast yet. But, uh, yeah, so humour is a very difficult thing to do, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, yeah, I'm a professional. Don't worry, you're in good hands. <laughs> um, but, look, so the reason I asked that question is that Doing a little bit of research on you and this whole project. This was published in 2016. This article on climate change.
1: So the there was a article in 2016 that really is a grievance studies article about glaciology and climate change, saying that because of masculine biases in the way we study glaciers, that we need to put feminism into glaciology in order to. Um, better study glaciers and that will help us mitigate climate change more effectively so that was an article that was was published in the number two geography journal a real article by real scholars who were not pretending or trying to pull a fast one operating on a six-figure grant from the national science foundation in the u.s Uh, and that's what led us to write the conceptual penis as a social construct which we started writing actually in late 2016, but it was published on the 19th of May, 2017 uh, in a extraordinarily low level um, journal that uh, exhibited you know, serious quality control issues at
0: their peer review stage. Okay. So, so this is what gave you the concept originally to move forward with a great agreement studies project? Right. So, we did that.
1: And then we were very rightly criticized for the, it being published in a journal that um, lawyers advise me I can't say is a predatory journal, meaning that it takes money to publish pretty much anything. But um, lawyers advise me to say that, and we'll leave it there and let people draw inferences. um So w- we were rightly criticized. And so we. Th- Started tossing the idea around. That was published in May. By June, Peter Bogosian and I, who collaborated on the Grievance Studies Project, started tossing around the idea of doing more papers. We weren't sure if we wanted to. We started, you know, talking to people a little bit. What do you think? You know, we know a wide variety of people. Some people thought it was a good idea. Other people thought it was a bad idea. Eventually by August, we decided to go ahead with it. And we started the project to um, examine grievance studies first by trying to do more hoaxes. And then what turned out to be uh, the case was to go into a much more in-depth study through the remainder of the year. And that all concluded on October 2nd of this year when we went public with our grievance studies uh, expose. Okay. Can you just give like a Uh, a broad outline
0: of exactly what you've done.
1: Sure. And this is great because it has kind of a double failure narrative. I mean, this is, you know, everybody likes the story where somebody sets out to do something completely, just completely screws it up and then comes back and rallies. So at the beginning, which was not part of this affair, we started out writing, we did the conceptual penis as a social construct, which is a pure pastiche, of just ridiculous nonsense that we we publish in a journal that doesn't qualify for what we needed it to qualify for. So it was a big failure in that sense. Um, a lot of people say it was a, a success on the satirical level. We defended that point for a while, but it's pretty weak. Um, so then we decided to try to do the project right. We were only going to send papers. We were going to write as many papers. This was the project we, we outlined in the summer of 2017. We were only going to send papers to established and ranked journals. So in fact, the higher the ranking within the fields that we were targeting, the better. We were only going to submit to journals that engage in legitimate full peer review. And then we were going to be transparent about our results, whether we succeeded or failed. Um, We started writing papers in... uh, Uh, we kind of started in June, but nothing got too serious until August of 2017. And then we proceeded to write papers for 10 months in a serious sense. And it works out to just under 12 months. If you, if you consider those first beginning papers that we fleshed out and poked around at to be a part of the deal. And so our goal was to write as many as we could in roughly a year. Um, We thought that we would be able to get 20 to 30 written, and we decided eventually to stop at 20 papers because we were, instead of writing until August 2017, we realized that we would need to stop sooner if we wanted to be able to get things through the process because it takes so long. So we decided to stop at approximately June, which gave us about 10 months, and we decided 20 papers was going to be the earmark for that. So we wrote 20 papers over the course of about a year, under a year, to probe the publishing standards within academic journals that are infected by what we called grievance studies in the end, which would be mostly journals dedicated to gender studies, feminist philosophy, critical race theory, um, queer studies, and so on. So that was ultimately the project. The double failure, of course, a conceptual penis was Kind of like the prelude it's like the hobbit to the lord of the Rings story if you will um the the second f- kind of like failure and recovery story happened in november um we were not getting anything in with our initial papers which were kind of the same but slightly more careful pastiches that we had done with the conceptual penis nobody was falling for our hoaxes in other words so, in late November, we finally got one of those papers that had gone to one peer reviewer, and uh, men and masculinities is the name of the journal. And the editor sent us the review, which rejected our paper for all the right reasons. It was humiliating. We realized we were in a lot of trouble. If you've seen the little video we put out when we announced our our probe to the world, you know it says, by Thanksgiving or by November, we were in trouble or something like that. And it was literally over the weekend of of Thanksgiving here in the United States. So the fourth weekend of of November that we got that feedback and realized we're screwed. Um, We cannot do it this way. We've got to do something different. And so we started actually studying the material rather than just trying to mimic it and actually started writing Real but ridiculous grievance studies papers on pretty idiotic topics for the most part, and trying to exaggerate the problems that we saw in the papers that we were reading in order to highlight the fact that these fields have gone off the off the rails. And so that change made everything work. So in the end, we ended up getting seven papers accepted. Uh, four of them actually were published. One got special recognition and an award for excellence by the Feminist Journal that accepted it. Um, We had seven more out of the 20 that were still in the process. We considered six to have been too broken to fix and kind of just let those go. But we had seven more. We estimate that it's probable that 11 to 13 papers very likely would have been able to get in if we would have had as much time as we needed, you know, maybe another five to six months to work with before we ended up having to go public. So which one was celebrated? The paper about dog humping was given an award by the journal. It was recognized as one of the top papers of the year. They're celebrating their 25th anniversary. So this isn't like some pop-up journal. that's new and they're desperate to get things started. This is a 25-year-old feminist geography journal. It's well-established. It's for grievance studies, fairly highly ranked um and they recognized it as exemplary scholarship in feminist geography and indicative of what the field should be doing and should continue to do going forward they were naming 12 papers one per issue for the 2018 year their 25th anniversary year to give this recognition to so it was considered one of the 12 best papers of the year and the paper is about um going to dog parks where people take to their dogs to walk and play, you know, if they live in cities, and w- watching dogs hump and fight with each other and then gauging how people reacted to that based on their gender and sexuality and the genders of the dogs involved and whether or not they were doing gay dog humping or straight dog humping and then use that to conclude that that there's a epidemic of rape culture not just in dog parks but in humans that's perpetuated by the way people interact with their dogs at the dog park and a a possible solution to this problem would be to train men like we train dogs in order to minimize rape culture it's almost
0: impossible to get more ludicrous than that paper i saw the new york times referred to you guys as hoaxes so i mean in one sense you are but i actually see you guys as somewhat well not somewhat but credible academics that have brought a hypothesis and then tested it in your field. And then the subjects, being the particular peer reviewed journals and academics, needed to be unaware as one of your uh, controls, more or less. Sure. Uh,
1: I mean, when you do a quality audit, which is kind of what this falls into, I mean, other people might call it a journalistic sting or whatever they want to say. It is necessary that the people involved aren't aware that you're checking them or else they'll modify their behavior accordingly. And so that was a necessary part that we we operated from behind a veil of apparent uh, anonymity. Um, So we used pseudonyms to write our papers. We didn't write them in our own names. We wrote them under the names of invented authors in most cases, or in one case, a a real person who lent us his identity to do the project. So we did that. Um, As far as being hoaxers. I think that the story is a little bit more complicated than that. And I don't know how complicated you want to get, but we certainly started out as hoaxers and we certainly learned that hoaxing doesn't work, at least not for us. Maybe somebody could pull a proper hoax off, but we couldn't. Um, And in the process, and I haven't mentioned yet, I should say that, you know, very early on in the project, uh, in September, long before we were in trouble, Helen Pluckrose joined in to work with us also. So she was, she was integral from very close to the beginning of the project. Uh, and she's the strongest theoretician of the three of us. But anyway, we worked in um, hoax like elements into every paper while trying to make the papers more and more deeply embedded in legitimate scholarship and emulating rather than, than kind of parodying legitimate scholarship, so they stopped being hoaxes, but it, to use the phrase, kind of on a spectrum. Um, we we talked to some people when we were going public about this, about how to present the material, who have some media savvy, and I wanted to talk about how every paper had certain levels of being a hoax and certain levels of being a serious paper written in what we might say is bad faith because I didn't, we didn't agree with the conclusions or the methods that we were using and it kind of varied. So some of our papers were really, really close to just legitimate papers within the field. For example, the one that is about the humor that we published in, uh, that was about ourselves and our own project, actually, that we had accepted by Hypatia, the feminist philosophy journal, that one was very, very close to just being a real paper that we didn't agree with the conclusions of. Probably it's you know more than 90% that. Now, you look at the dog park paper, that's probably like 80% just ridiculous hoax. So there, there's kind of this blending of the two approaches. But what we learned in the first part of the project, going from August through November in particular, was that we don't have, maybe somebody does, but we don't have the skill to properly just hoax The field, So it's a bit unfortunate that we've been called hoaxers, but we've also been advised just to kind of go with the word because people understand it. (laughs) So it is what it is. But I think you are right. We are something of legitimate scholars in the field who just didn't believe the arguments that we were making.
0: Well, I'm curious about the terminology you've used. And I've seen that you've used the term applied postmodernism and grievance studies, of course. But did you guys come up with this terminology or is this something that previously existed? As far as I know, I came up with both of those terms.
1: Um, So they're actually interchangeable terms as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Grievance studies was something that I started using on Twitter occasionally as a shorthand summary for cultural studies, gender studies, race studies, queer studies, masculinity studies, et cetera. All these studies of identity that, come from what appear to be activist-style departments in the universities that focus, like I said, on identity, but in particular, they focus on grievances about alleged power dynamics that are intrinsic to society. So that term was, was my invention, and that was the purpose behind it, was that these people are actually studying grievances that are understood in the sense of power dynamics in society. Now, this power dynamic in society idea is where we get to the postmodern thing, because ultimately that's how they're understanding the power dynamics is through postmodern theory, stretching back to the kind of big original postmodern theorists like Foucault and Derrida and Lyotard and things like that. Um, Very language discourse centric thinking. Uh, the, The belief is that we cannot access objective reality And so everything that we call reality is ultimately subjective and we understand it in terms of whatever discourses are are dominant. Discourses means ways of talking about things. And so people in power create and legitimize the discourses and therefore control the way we talk about things and therefore do that to maintain their own power. That's the postmodern view. Now, In the 80s and 90s, late 80s and early 1990s, that all changed and made what we've called the postmodern turn. And that's where we would say that grievance studies, although they had roots stretching back further, that's where grievance studies really began. You have, for example, Kimberly Crenshaw, who is famous for having started intersectionality. She's the person who came up with that idea in a paper called Mapping the Margins in the late 1980s. And Kimberly Crenshaw explicitly says at the end of Mapping the Margins that They want to be able to apply postmodern theory, but to do so, you can't assume that nothing is is objectively real. And so what should be assumed as real is identity and oppression based on identity, which is exactly the grievance thing we were tapping into. So Kimberly Crenshaw's idea was that to be effective, postmodern theory had to be applied. To apply it, we have to focus upon oppression rooted in identity as the only thing that's truly real. And therefore, you have this connection between applied postmodernism and grievance studies that um, shows that they're, they're really – it's two terms for the same concept. Uh, applied postmodernism is basically taking these postmodern concepts of – that society is largely in power in society and our access, our access to understanding reality is rooted in discourse and language. And that that's mediated and controlled by power dynamics that favor dominant groups rooted in identity and uh, disadvantage or marginalize or oppress other groups, usually based on things like race, sex, gender, sexuality, um, and so on.
0: Okay. And do you believe that yourself? Do I believe that such things are – that that's true? Not the particular form of analysis,
1: but in practice. Yes and no, mostly no. Uh, there, there, This is a very important point actually with, with the stuff in grievance studies with postmodernism and even with applied postmodernism, the real frustration and if I had to say one really big thing we learned doing this project is there are profound kernels of truth in pretty much all of it. Um, there certainly are some kinds of power dynamics in society. There are certainly, especially say in American society, I can't speak for all countries, But in American society, there are legitimate structural issues that have impacted racial minorities and whether it's, you know, still going on at a cultural level or whether it's a hangover from past injustices is difficult to say. And of course, the grievance studies, people intentionally blur this line. But I think there's definitely work to be done in those places. However, when you look at it in such a caricatured way, it becomes really strange. So, for example, if I were a black man, which I could probably just get in trouble for saying that now in this new structure, but if I were a black man and I were to come out and say that the grievance studies stuff doesn't represent me, it doesn't speak to my experience and that I have kind of a more, um, say, libertarian or conservative or whatever you want to say view on on say merit and maybe I'm against some of these inclusion and equity initiatives and all this chances are what they would accuse me of as being what they some one of the phrase one of the derogatory terms for this is a coconut which is brown on the outside and white on the inside and so the claim would be that I have this kind of false consciousness where I'm sucking up to the the dominant power dynamic of whiteness which they construe as an ideology so that I might extract benefit from it as a person of color who is basically being a sycophant. Um, So are there legitimate issues? Yes. Are there reasons to have grievances about some of these issues? Yes. Do we need to do something about them? Yes. Should we say that basically, all people of a particular identity group should perceive these issues in the same way. And if they don't, that they have some kind of a psychological, you know, unconscious drive to, or or selfish drive to benefit for themselves kind of in parallel to the whole religious structure that sinners want to be, want to sin. Therefore, you know, the the Calvinists call that total depravity, that you're so enthralled to your own sinful fallen nature that you're going to you you can't possibly choose god that's the calvinist hardcore calvinist view so it's kind of just like that it's like that if if you are in a particular identity group that you really should experience the world in certain ways with regard to power dynamics and should therefore take a particular line based on your identity group um no that's not correct and that's what's going on in applied postmodernism I'm by
0: no means a, um, a full-time academic, but I um, I did write my thesis on uh, power dynamics between states, and mm-hmm. uh, I used the, the framework of dimensional power, which is more common to be looked at in in regards to like nation-state and international relations, for example. And it would always be, you know, coercion is a getting B to do what he wants. Uh, second dimensional power would be a getting. B to have two choices, both of which would favor A, and three would be, or third dimensional power would be one in which the B was unconscious that every decision he could possibly make would favor A. So, I, I, I mean, I tend to agree with those unconscious forms of coercion and everything like that. But when you start fragmenting society down into identity and everything like that, I think it speaks to how we actually overcome this structurally in a country. I mean, it, it becomes devilishly problematic.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the idea of intersectionality that Kimberly Crenshaw laid out, for example, this is a, a really interesting point that a lot of people don't get. I think she pointed to whether she used three case studies to about discrimination law to make her case about intersectionality, which her case was that people with more than one uh, identity marker that can, can or is discriminated against um, experience as a right discrimination in a more complex way than others. So the the point she was making was was good, whether the cases that she used to make her case hold up is a matter of some debate, and I'm not going to try to adjudicate on that because it doesn't matter. Philosophically, I think the point she was making was sound. In short, what she had was a situation where she was looking at the possible unique discrimination of black women in workplaces. And the companies that were – the three case law uh, studies that she put, put forward were, one, were, were ones in which the companies that were accused of discriminating against black women hired sufficiently many women to avoid gender discrimination, but most of them were white. And they hired sufficiently many black men to avoid uh, race discrimination. But this left a loophole that they could still be discriminating against black women in particular based on black female stereotypes because they could hire enough white women and black men to avoid hiring black women in a discriminatory way. I think there's a legitimate point to be investigated there. Fine. All well and good. So there's your kernel of truth. There's your something that's really worth looking into. But Then – She goes and says that this needs to be understood according to postmodern power dynamics. It needs to be understood in terms of applying postmodernism and essentially comes down to what what I was just talking about, that people should, in essence, have a particular set of lived experiences, which they speak to if they possess a particular identity or set of identity markers, Um, and that... that. Uh, that creates a unique and and terrible form or worse form, actually, of oppression. So her point, her, her analogy where intersectionality came from was it's as though you're standing in an intersection of a, of two streets and each street is the possibility of discrimination. So if you get hit by a car, that's like being discriminated against. So if you're standing in one road and you get hit by a car, you know where the car came from. But if you're standing in the intersection of two streets and you get hit by a car, you don't know whether it was, say, race or gender that you got discriminated against uh, as the basis of your discrimination. So that creates not just the problems of race discrimination and gender discrimination, but also an additional problem of ambiguity of how you're being discriminated against, which prevents you from being able to seek uh, mediation for your problem. Um Like I said, I think that this was an interesting idea, but then putting it in terms of applied postmodernism, as she explicitly did in Mapping the Margins, taking it and saying that there's something about identity and oppression based on identity, that it's real, led to exactly what you're talking about, which is a fragmentation of society. Intersections in mathematics – my background is in mathematics – intersections are how you make sets smaller. to, we have two things. The intersection is the thing that the two sets that overlap. If you think of like the Venn diagram, two circles that overlap, the intersection is that part that's in both sets. It's that little sliver in the middle where the two circles overlap. So the intersection is always either the same size or smaller than the sets that are being intersected. So in, in essence, intersectionality by putting vested interest regarding oppression and dominance in intersecting identities creates smaller and smaller social groups based on demographic identity issues who have more and more concentrated claim to victimhood or grievance and who are not, they, you don't bring groups together with shared identity. You fragment into smaller and smaller groups. So you, you have a huge thing in, in academic feminism right now constantly going on. You just saw it with the midterm elections here in the United States with popular articles where you see women of color and their allies, white allies, taking up a brand of feminism that openly excoriates white women for not standing with their uh, – with women of color, where it comes to, uh, you know, voting or whatever they voted, white women, more white women voted for Trump, therefore, or voted for Republicans. Therefore they're throwing women of color under the bus and it's selfish and blah, blah, blah. So therefore you can't have a feminism that represents white women and women of color because the white women will automatically favor their own power and privilege. That's the postmodern hypothesis, even if it's subconsciously. And therefore the, not recognize the needs of the oppressed women. So you can't even like get a unified feminism. You can't get a unified, you know, coalition working on issues of race because you're going to have gender issues or sexuality issues coming in and fragmenting those groups. So it's actually a doctrine of fragmentation based on identity. And you see it play out exactly like that. It's happening in real time. And then what happens is fragmentation gets more fragmentation and more fragmentation and more fragmentation. For example, there's a big fight going on right now where say you have black people, okay? So you have black people and then who how does privilege work within being black? And then there's this huge thing. Well, there's to put it kind of in three categories, you have dark-skinned, medium-skinned, and light-skinned, and they have varying amounts of privilege. And so you can't even have like a coalition of black people because now you have to like cordon them off according to where their skin tone falls. Um, So it's it's inherently a a structure of fragmentation, uh, of of breaking society apart according to increasingly minute um, identity markers in an attempt to be able to claim unique victim status that gives them the power to make oppression claims and through the epistemologies of postmodern thought and applied postmodern thought, especially therefore avoid criticism and have a easier pass at making their arguments.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, men have become, particularly white men have become a target in recent times, but I often feel very sorry for a lot of women as well, because if they don't accord to this new sort of identity politics, they become a traitor to their class. Oh yeah. Gender traitor is a, is a longstanding term. I often think that if we were to look into a country that we felt was sliding into dangerous tribalism, say we were looking at Rwanda in the years before the genocides there, we would see an uptick in this type of identity politics, but we don't recognize it within our own societies. That may be
1: the case. I I wouldn't know for sure, but I would say that this level of dangerous fragmentation is is a problem. Um, Helen – who worked with us on the project is actually an expert in medieval literature and late medieval, early modern. Her her expertise is very narrow and very specific, but she recognizes that what this is doing is not so much in an economic sense as in a social sense, but it's a return away from kind of what we might consider modern democratic societies to a feudalistic society. But the tribes, rather than being by economic class, are being fragmented by social class as assumed by identity markers under a postmodern analysis of dominance and oppression. And so the problems that come with feudalism come with where we're headed. And what you you will see and what we do see, we see increasingly fragmented groups fighting for their share of the pie and what they see to be a zero sum game to acquire the – benefits that come with possessing a status that's deemed marginalized. So more marginalized gives you uh, you a bigger pass. Uh, You're challenged less. You're supposed to be, according to their theory of equity, you're supposed to be given greater access to opportunities to equal things out. So there's a moral and even physical economy built around claiming increasing levels of of victim or oppression status. And what you see right now is you see frantic competition between feudalistic tribes trying to maximize their utility in that that space. And that's not a healthy direction for a society to go in any regard. And it ironically cannot solve the problems it's claiming to
0: want to solve. It will, in fact, increase them. Yeah, it's all about power. And I really like what you guys have done with accentuating the point that these people that are pushing this type of agenda are actually influencing. So they are in a position of of power. So that yeah. they are pushing people down, they are squeezing people out of jobs. You know, oh, yeah. they, they themselves are not the oppressed.
1: No, not so much, not anymore. Um, so from the very beginning... The agenda here, which, of course, was strengthened tremendously in the applied turn that postmodernism took in the in the late 80s and 90s, has been and they're not secret. They don't keep a secret about this. It's in almost everything they talk about has been to fundamentally remake society. And the easiest way to do that and the way that they are doing that and the way that everybody who wants to remake society would remake society is by remaking institutions that you can get control over and then expanding from there. These people, through whatever set of circumstances allowed it, began in perhaps the most dangerous of all institutions to be able to colonize, if you will, and take over, which is the academy, the, the universities. So they've nearly completely taken over educational theory at this point. So what we see is certainly in the universities, increasingly, very rapidly in the last five to maybe, maybe 10, but especially the last five years, But also stretching into, um, you know, elementary and high school education, you see these huge pushes to educate according to a social justice agenda. And then people who are educated in such a way, what do they do? They then carry their what they've learned through education to be what they believe to be the truth into their workplaces and into other institutions that they go out into. So you see this. Now jumping from the universities as more and more people have graduated programs that are steeped in this mindset and have been educated since, you know, earlier middle childhood in it and see it as the way the world works. They're going out, they're getting in media. They have this agenda to try to remake society to some degree or another kind of built into them. They want to overcome oppression. They want to do the right thing. You hear it constantly that they, quote, want to be on the right side of history you always hear the right side of history, right side of history. That's kind of the mythology that's operating there. Um, that history has this direction and they're on the right side of it because they're fighting oppression, blah, blah, blah. And it starts to take over other institutions, one institution after another, after another. And this is an open agenda. Their goal has been from the beginning to remake society that started with wanting to remake the academy, the, the to remake media their biggest spheres of influence, if you look at their um journals, are education. Media, feminist media studies is big and has been big for decades. Uh critical race theory is almost completely infused in education. And then you see it in some of the the practice fields like social work. You see it in um some avenues of psychology, you see it not necessarily experimental psychology, but in in practice psychology, you see it in in it's not just like confined to these weird journals in the humanities. It's actually being put into practice in, in administrations uh, in universities and HR departments and company and companies. It's taken over a great deal of, of media in terms of how media has to be viewed and structured. Remember their focus is on discourses, which is how things are talked about, which includes media. So people who are, are, um, educated, or if we might even say indoctrinated in this worldview, are going to be obsessively concerned with how media is produced and what images are shown in media. We just see right now, it's almost Christmas, so it went around on Twitter the other day, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the claymation thing from the 1950s, is being problematized despite the fact that the story is ultimately one of accepting difference. Uh, because, you know, there are problematic messages in there for people who want to find them. And then every year now it's the circus of baby it's cold outside that, that old Christmas song again from the fifties, which if you look at it in the context of when it was written and what it's actually doing and in the movie that it was embedded in, it's actually a disruptive piece of art. It was set up to complain in an artful way about a social structure where if a man and a woman wanted to be able to have sex outside of marriage and they were both in that position and trying to consent to it, the the whole song is about social structures that would shame the woman for wanting to 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 participate in this. And so it's a disruptive piece. Of, it's, it's exactly the kind of thing that they should be producing. But all they can see is that the guy is trying to come on to the woman and keeps trying and keeps trying, even though she keeps saying no in various ways. But she's doing one of those things in the song where she's saying between the lines, I want to say yes, but what will my parents think? What will the neighbors think? What will the society think? And so it's it's absolutely ridiculous the levels to which they are um, obsessed with education and media. And it shows it's it's made its way out into those two sectors. And as we saw, you know, James Damore getting fired at Google for his memo for talking about the possible scientific roots for why there is a gender difference in in, say software engineers and tech. It's made it into corporate HR as these people have gone out. And what are people who, who graduate in grievance studies going to go into? Well, they're gonna go into fields where they can make a difference. They're gonna go, they're gonna become diversity officers at your corporation. They're gonna become lawyers who wanna work on, that's what Kimberly Crenshaw was, a lawyer. They're gonna go into places where they can influence education, law, media, uh, and institutional structures so that they can put their beliefs and their 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 views into practice
0: yeah I would hope that your guys' legacy over this project would be to to inject these new terminologies into this field so that we would sort of reshape the way we actually see these activist disciplines as well so that they're more in line with like how they're playing a role in society how they're affecting change whether they're positive or negative right right yeah i think well grievance studies certainly has
1: stuck um i don't think the people that do it are happy about that but that term has definitely stuck uh it, i hear the term grievance studies from people sometimes who don't know that i was involved in the project so mm. i know the term has stuck Applied postmodernism, we haven't pushed yet, and it's more complicated. It's It carries more baggage, so it requires more explaining. I don't think people understand
0: postmodernism. It's...
1: No, that's the thing. is, There's a lot to understand with postmodernism, and then postmodernism is complicated because a lot of what we call postmodernism is poststructuralism. They're not quite the same. Then there's all these materialist branches of this stuff, which means basically Marxist or Marxian that, um, are woven in, it's all very, very complicated. So to call something applied postmodernism requires in writing, probably thousands of words of unpacking what's going on just to make it clear. And so it's not, it's not the kind of term that has a ton of memeability if you want people to use it accurately, but I think it's going to be important to unpack and and do. So I'm actually working on an essay right now, talking about parallels. I see between social justice, ideology, which is based in grievance studies uh, or applied postmodernism if you will and religion the way that it is and is not religious in its execution and so i'm hoping that will embed the term applied postmodernism a little bit more uh i know helen and i are planning on writing more things about it coming up soon helen's working on a book that's essentially about the applied postmodern turn i'm helping her with that so We'll see what happens, but I do agree that we want to get these kinds of these points kind of out there because say, I mean, it doesn't really matter to me where somebody's political leanings are. I I do worry if they're on the fringes on either side. But ultimately, when I think about people, you know, I'm a member, I would consider myself falling on the left. And I, I feel like part of what I'm doing is trying to clean up my own side. And what I run into repeatedly is People who broadly agree with me politically, you know, in the broadest broad sense, um, meaning that they see themselves as on the left. They often haven't thought about these things deeply or a lot, and they have taken on a lot of this stuff. But when you talk to them about it, this applied postmodern or grievance study stuff, when you talk to them about it, they're they're not really clear on why they think that way. And then when you press them a little bit, they kind of don't really think that way. But to get them to actually question it, they kind of hit this wall immediately like, oh, wait, we're going into bigotry territory, and I'm definitely not going to go into bigotry. So they back off all of a sudden. And um, so there's a documentary being made about the probe we did by a guy, Mike Nana, N- who also runs our YouTube channel. Uh, you know, I'm be-
0: sure. by the way.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's Melbourne. So you. Yeah, I can hear you. you're 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 an Aussie, um. So yeah, he uh, he's putting together this this thing, but he he said he he's got really great insights. I can't call him just like our filmmaker because that's not fair, or the guy with the camera because he actually has some really great insights that are good food for thought for how we approach this. And he says that to get his experience, trying to get people on the left to think about these topics. In an open-minded way to really approach their their issues that they see with grievance studies, and they have them, but then they kind of back away from them. The trick is you have to actually get them to go upstream on their moral intuitions. They have this feeling like to question the stuff is tied to bigotry somehow, and you re- that the impulse to feel that way is really strong. And you actually have to make yourself uncomfortable and sit with it to realize that that's not really what's going on. And that takes time and discomfort because that's what it always takes to question your moral leanings. Uh, So there's this difficulty there. And that's what I run into all the time with people that are situated vaguely on the left is that they – like everybody, they don't want to go upstream on their political beliefs. And this isn't a left versus right thing. Like the right is somehow more enlightened because they, because if you send the right upstream on its political beliefs, they do the same thing. It's just that their political beliefs are different. Um, so they go along pretty well with this stuff about grievance studies. But if you get them to go upstream on say something like guns or immigration, oh shit, you know, they put up the same walls. And so getting people to sit, with this and think about it in an open way and engage with material that takes them upstream on their, their moral leanings is difficult. And that's sort of like the project where we're at now is figuring out how to help people or lead people to be able to do that, to, to engage with and sit with this material in a longer, longer setting so that they can, like I said, when you, when you talk to the people like on the, if I go talk to my friends who are left situated, they tend to generally say, oh, yeah, it goes too far. Oh, yeah, it's I'm worried about that. OK, yeah, there's always some lunatics and I definitely don't agree with that. And I wish they would stop and all this. But if you if you press them, they, they, they tend not to agree and then eventually hit this wall where this moral wall where they feel like they're getting on. They're getting into kind of, um, you know, sexist or racist or whatever territory, even though in many cases, you're nowhere near that stuff. You're just questioning, say, critical race theory's approach. And all of a sudden, they're like, well, isn't that a bit racist? And it's like, well, no, it's not racist to question anything. What are you talking about? And so um, you definitely have this kind of a problem. And
0: that's that's been something that we're trying to figure out how to address now. Did you hear that interview? I think it was with Brett Weinstein. And he described this dilemma and he said he felt like a political refugee from the centre-left that had found uh, asylum on the centre-right. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And he he couldn't, said it, it was like an oasis, yeah, he couldn't, I said. Yeah, and he couldn't understand how friendly the centre-right had been or something like that. So I, I think that speaks to a lot of people. I certainly know a lot of people that would consider themselves centre-left that have now... in in a state of shock almost gone, I can't I can't go down this road any longer and, and have sort of drifted across the margins.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And um, I think that that's actually a, a very significant point that – and like Brett has pointed out that he hasn't compromised on his own beliefs or his own views, but he has realized that, you know, there's this – a lot of people certainly will because – if you start to feel like a political refugee or as many other people phrase it, being politically homeless, then the tendency is to want to find a home. I mean, we're very uh, community oriented. We're a very social animal. uh, Human beings are. And so we will very readily mold our beliefs around who provides us a community that welcomes us. And so The extremism that we see coming out of this social justice left is so intense and it's so unpalatable for so many people, especially people who do care about um, achieving, say, socially progressive aims uh, and traditional liberal values at the same time and traditional liberal values. Absolutely. People who care about this are going to be alienated by the very authoritarian behavior that you see coming out of this this social justice ideology. And the shaming tactics and the attempts like in Brett's case to ruin their careers or their lives, uh, the phrase that, you know, gets thrown around is cancel white people or cancel so-and-so, meaning basically, you know, reduce them to, to the lowest levels of, of status within the economy or within, within the society, uh, And when they start looking for somebody to fit in with and they start talking to other left leaning people and they run into that same problem that I had or I still have is that, you know, they hit this point where they kind of accept they mostly reject it, but kind of accept the basic premises. It's it makes you feel politically homeless. It makes you feel like you don't have a place where you can talk to people. And so then when you end up talking to people, say, in the center right, all of a sudden you feel like you have a home. And you have a community, and that community is very likely to shape your values. I think that the far left is very sensitive to this, and this is part of why they're so vigorously angry at center-left people. It's so They fire so many of their guns, not at the right wing, but at the center-left. And I think a big part of the reason is likely to be that they know that if the center left is in agreement in part with the center right, that that sense of community will take center left people and move them center toward center right views, without recognizing that it does the same for the people in the center right. Also, it brings them toward center left, uh, and they're they're paranoid because they don't want to lose the social and political power that they feel like they've gained. Um, I think there's there's something to
0: that there. I think that a lot of this is quite, uh, geopolitically induced, actually. Um, I think I mean, so. You I think so the, too. You look at the broad deindustrialization of the West. Now, the traditional working class voter has become very aggrieved with what formerly was his spokespeople that haven't been yeah. able to protect their livelihood. Sure. And at the same time, those people have then now, well, those spokespeople have now immediately drifted to this form of identity politics, and and the traditional center-left voter will not return until the West reestablishes itself as having a strong industrial base.
1: I think that is is at least partly true. Um, I'm not expert enough to talk about this in great detail, but I will say that um, certainly – this identity politics stuff is not appealing to the to the working class person who normally would have seen themselves in the se- the center left as having been represented by a center left party that worked for workers uh, and labor. Whether or not it can be recovered in the evolving economy is unclear, but certainly the focus on identity politics is going to continue to alienate those people until the center or until the left leaning parties and left-leaning culture stop doing it. People are sick of busybodies and scolds and everything of that sort representing what left politics means. I have several friends, for example, who um, have recently decided and become quite, I would say, even somewhat radicalized into being conservatives who have always been, you know, sort of near the line between center and, and or between right and left near the center, but probably leaning left. They've always voted Democrat. They've always insisted that they'd vote Democrat. Um, now they vote Republican, and they're pretty strongly that way. And the reasons that they tend to give when I talk to these, and of course, it's just anecdotes. I'm just talking to a few people here. But the reasons that they tend to give me are hating the identity politics, but also hating the incessant scolding. You know, you, you go out there was an, a good article about this not that long ago, but you go out and you want to have a barbecue for, say, you know, whatever holiday in the summer. Maybe it's your birthday. Maybe it's Fourth of July. Maybe it's you know, our, which is our Independence Day. Maybe it's whatever it is. You want to have a barbecue. You want to grill some burgers. So you get some burgers. You invite all your friends over. You get some beer and you put it in a cooler. And then you're left leaning, you know, high society. They're not really high society, but they're pretending to be high society. You know, better than you, elite left-leaning friends come over and they're like, "Well, are these burgers organic? Or are they grass-fed beef?" Or you know, basically, your food's not good enough. And then this beer is, you know, packaged up in and what you know, it's in aluminum cans, and that's problematic because. Or I never drink beer unless it's craft beer, and this isn't craft beer. And then you know, what's why is this in a styrofoam cooler? Do you know how bad styrofoam is for the environment? And it's just one fucking scolding issue after another like your normal attempt at life is somehow not good enough and they cite this repeatedly that it's driven them from they're like i don't want to identify or be identified with a group who behaves that way now you add in the identity politics stuff where hey that thing you said Maybe that thing you said was a little bit racist. Maybe that thing you said was a little bit sexist. And people are either just trying to talk normally or openly or have to tell jokes. There is, and the left will lose their mind if they hear me say this. So let's hope they do. Um, There is room for humor. In fact, there's an important role for humor that touches upon issues of race and, and sex and gender and sexuality and everything. And not to say that racist and sexist, you know, derogatory jokes have a great place, but there's an important social function to it. Helen and I have talked about this at length, in particular regarding national identity. Um, neither of us would identify as nationalists by any means, but for her to speak teasingly to, say, as a, she's in in England, uh, as you know part of the United Kingdom, she's in England, and for her to speak teasingly to Scots or Irish people or to French people, in good nature, creates a kind of camaraderie and it also does other things um, Mike Nana who's fi- who's who's working with us and filming the the project for his documentary is half black and so he and I've had many long discussions about the functions of slightly racial humor in ways like how it navigates the friendship across that kind of you know, identity division, there is, there is a difference of identity and a difference of experience that happens based on say race. And to be able to kind of navigate that with, with humor allows people to test social boundaries of, you know, where, where is going too far? What are the right kinds of, of beliefs that are safe to have? And then on the other side, you know, what is, is, Where's the line where I need to say something and what is it best to like make funny and and let go of and not become offended about and to practice not becoming offended about? There's a lot of room for this good-natured, friendly humor across matters of identity, whether it's national identity or racial identity, sexual identity, gender identity, and so on.
0: It's essential for a modus vivendi.
1: Well, it's a humor in its most basic purpose. People think, oh, it's to make you laugh, but it has much more subtle purposes. If people spend any time thinking about and, and act, uh, actively working with humor, humor is the... And everybody does this and everybody's experienced it countless times. Humor is the easiest way, safest way to socially broach a topic you're not sure if you can broach. Because you kind of like, let's say you want to drop... um, What's a good example? You say you want to... Say you're a married guy and you want to drop the idea with your wife that you want to have a threesome, right? So, so you, you think <laughs> your wife might lose her shit over this. Probably she will. Um, if you come at it and be like, hey, honey, I'd like to bring another woman into the bed. This is probably going to go pretty badly. But if you're like, start making little jokes about it and kind of probing her reactions, it's a safe way. And if she kind of reacts badly and you're like, oh, I was just kidding, it's a safe way to bring up a topic without having to commit to it. So you can probe social limits with, say, in that case is your wife, but if it's across national lines or um, other lines of identity, gender, sex, race, you can kind of probe the limits and find out where the edges are, where is too far, where where can you go, where can you laugh together, where can you bond, where where are you crossing lines? And it creates a way for human beings to safely navigate what would be extraordinarily awkward and uncomfortable conversations that nobody wants to have in a dynamic way that everybody can accept. And so there's an important social role to humor. So when you see like with the social justice it's so, so, so regulatory on – what kind of thing is too offensive to say or to joke about, you lose that. And so what you have then is a huge breakdown in communication between people with various different identities because they don't know where the boundaries are. And they, like if, I'm sorry, I'm a math person, so let's use numbers. Let's say the boundary of something is at you know, a level of six in terms of intensity, that's the real boundary. But you don't know where the boundary is and you don't want to offend anybody you might limit yourself to only going to level three of intensity. Does that make sense? Like you don't you don't <clears> go all the way to where you think the line really is. You, you're you going to hold yourself back in common parlance. We call that a chilling effect. There's a chilling effect on on discussion or, or communication or camaraderie across lines of identity. When you have this situation where everything's where you're afraid that you're likely to cause offense. Now, you can use safe methods like humor, for example, where everything doesn't have to be a freaking serious, awkward conversation to probe. And so you set your default at three if the thing is six and you make a joke at four and then, you know, it passes. Everybody laughs. Everybody carries on. And the person that might have been offended realizes, okay, you know, there are things to talk about here that I don't have to take offense because I know and trust this person to not be a jerk. And then the person who makes a joke says, oh, so now I can go to four. And then you make another joke and maybe it goes up to six. And it's like you can you get that weird sense. You're like, oh, that was right at the line. Maybe they cut it one to a seven. And then it's like the guy on the other end's like, hey, I you know, I know you're just trying to be funny. That one went a little bit raw. You know, they hit a nerve. Sorry, but, you know, let's let's recalibrate. And so it gets a little awkwardness, but you have this whole procedure to where you now you have all that range Between what we called three and six that was chilled out if 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 you're not allowed to make jokes or talk cordially about things. And all that space for creative collaboration is is destroyed. When you go with the full social justice thing, they don't set the bar at three. They set it at fucking zero. You're not allowed to make any kind of joke, you're not allowed to say anything that might be construed as offensive. And you're not even allowed to do it if somebody else thinks it might be construed as offensive, which is ridiculous. So your diversity officer, part of their job is to determine if, say, say that um, there are no relevant racial or gender or sexual minorities present, and I'm speaking with other people their job can be to determine, well, you can't speak like that because if such a person was present, they might be offended. And it, there might even be such a person offend, er, present that's laughing along with it. But then the diversity officer is like, well, I could see how I would be offended you know, by whatever grievance studies magic. Therefore, that's still not OK, even if it's, you know, not being taken as offensive if it's just that normal social interaction. So what you have is the pressure to create, and I maybe haven't articulated this very well because I haven't tried to write this out yet. And usually I don't articulate things well until I try to write them out clearly. But what you have here is the recipe for a massive chilling effect that, that undermines collegiality, it undermines collaboration, it undermines creativity, especially creativity. John Cleese from uh, Monty Python has a wonderful discussion on creativity. Everybody should look it up on YouTube. Um, I think that's what it's just Google or you know, put in YouTube search, John Cleese and creativity. It's like a half hour talk. And he talks about how creativity comes from a place where you don't, it, it only happens. It can only flourish when you don't feel like you're going to be put down and criticized for throwing out ideas. So you're talking about just taking Again, with the fragmentation, you're talking about taking the possibility for diverse groups in, say, workplaces or creative endeavors or institutions or academic whatever it is, society in general, where you have the possibility to tap into that diversity to create something truly creative, funny, uh, entertaining, interesting, educational, informative, insightful, whatever the depth that you can draw from creativity is. And you basically put ice on all the space for that creativity to happen. Um, it's really not an operative situation. If you want pro social behavior, if you want a functioning society, if you want people who can collaborate and work together, and if you ultimately want to advance, if it's true that say minorities of some sort for sort or another, or women are disadvantaged in the workplace, creating a situation where people feel uncomfortable working with them is probably not the best way or to collaborate with them in in full measure is probably not the best way to advance their interests in the workplace. It really is the most backwards way to approach a problem that one can almost imagine.
0: Yeah. Um, In the piece in Arrow magazine, you guys quoted, uh, sorry, I quote, uh, these fields of study do not continue the important and noble liberal work of the civil rights movement they corrupt it while trading upon the good names to keep pushing a kind of social snake oil onto a public that keeps getting sicker. Just comment on that.
1: Yeah, it's it's really... That's actually a complicated thing, but it's, it's, it's correct. Um, people won't like hearing that it's correct, but it's correct. Uh, the civil rights movements were about appealing to a truly liberal society to make good on its promises. Martin Luther King, for example saw that the constitution said that all men are created equal and was like, why isn't that being delivered on? Okay. So American society is founded upon and, uh, fundamentally committed to this idea of men being created equal or people, he meant people, of course, and that is not being delivered upon. So we need to appeal to the, the common universal human rights experience, experience the contract of what it means to be an American in order to make good on that promise. And what's happened with grievance studies stuff applied postmodernism is they f- feel like they're continuing that and their roots are actually in it. And I can talk a bit about that in a moment, but they have turned it from let's appeal to, our, to what we have in common to make good upon the promises of a liberal society to let's switch from equality to equity and make society equal in the most simple-minded caricatured form. And the crazy part is that they can actually appeal to exactly the same things. They don't have to problematize Martin Luther King in order to have done it. They're not overthrowing him. They've corrupted it. They've put this in terms of, of identity-based battles rather than trying to make good on the promises of equality and they can use exactly the same language to do it because it's genuinely a corruption rather than a, uh, or a perversion if you want, rather than a overthrowing. So they can say, well, that's really what we're after. We're really after getting the society to make good, say for sexual minorities, for trans people or whatever. But that's not what they're doing. They are, Identifying that trans people have unique lived experiences that then have to be deferred to, which is a different thing. The big change there is that they stopped thinking in terms of equality, which is what the civil rights movements were predicated upon, and they started thinking in terms of equity, which is different. They are not interchangeable terms. People often don't understand this because it's a technical distinction. Equality means that person A and person B are treated equally. Equity means that person A is modified in some way, the experience or opportunities of person A are modified to make them equal with the with that of person B. And so affirmative action, for example, is an equity initiative. What we call inclusion, diversity and inclusion now are, are equity initiatives. They are trying to level the playing field by artificial means rather than trying to reduce and minimize or eradicate discrimination. They are to make up not just for present injustices, but also for historical injustices. Um, so there's a lot going on there. Why did this happen? I think because the civil rights movements were, were really successful and they are, I think, rightly identified as being forces for moral progress for, for good. I would say that we have done better uh, in general and in many, many ways by having achieved those milestones of human history. Um, But then when the big work is done, what's left? And so you have these kind of activists who are people who are very invested in the concept of wanting to continue that work when the bulk of that work is done. And so... When you have, at the same time, this ready-made political philosophy that's budded out of postmodernism, a postmodern view of the world in terms of language and power dynamics, et cetera, that being intrinsic and, and rooted in, in, say, group identity or the way that group identities interact with one another, the idea that power and privilege exist and try to establish, legitimize, and perpetuate themselves, um, when you have that ready to, to go in, you, you, you have – the access to the next step, and again, postmodernism's whole thing was to be skeptical, as they say, toward toward meta narratives, toward big sweeping uh, explanations of society. For example, and so uh, communism, Christianity, uh, capitalism, uh, liberalism—these are meta narratives for society. Colonialism. So it's the skepticism there which is really almost cynical in its, in its application, provided the means. Let they, the point of postmodern pho- social philosophy was to look at structures in society and to question them in order to disrupt those structures. That's what postmodernism is, is about in its most general thing. If you look at postmodern art, the point of postmodern art is to take the usual rules of art and to, in some sense, disregard them, to replace them with arbitrary rules or with um, no rules at all. Uh, Although arbitrary rules is probably more accurate. Um, It's the same thing with social philosophy. There are these rules of society. Let's disrupt them. Let's break them. Let's get rid of them and see what happens. Let's consider them to be perfectly arbitrary, even if they're not, and replace them with other arbitrary rules. And so this whole thing was ready-made for you had these kind of activists who wanted to continue that that noble work most of the noble work was complete things were not perfect there are historical hangovers there are still present injustices and unfairness that need work still nothing is perfect and they had a ready-made um philosophy to dip into political philosophy to dip into that enabled them to see everything through a disruptive problematizing lens uh to
0: that's the corruption hmm. did you did you do any comparative work on say uh, the similarities between the fields you looked at and other forms of highly politicized research like say big tobacco for example
1: no we did draw an analogy to that because people are eager to or, or sorry people are readily able to understand why that's a corruption so you know when there's a big financial interest, Say like big tobacco or the sugar industry or whatever, when they put out or or lots of different industries so when there's a big financial interest or there's a big political advantage, people understand corruption you know immediately. This corruption is a little it's a, definitely a political interest but it's a lot more subtle because it's disruptive and uh, rather than you know overt. So. We did not do comparative studies, but we do think the analogy is likely to be sound. What we have, although it's complicated because it's very complicated because when there's a financial interest, for example, it's very simple what's going on. You're cheating the system in order to make money. You're doing biased research in order to to achieve some goal. Here you have a situation where they definitely do openly want to remake society, but you're honestly dealing in my my estimation mostly with but not entirely with true believers they really do believe society works this way which is why i'm comparing it so much in this this essay i'm writing now to religion they're very much into the tr- they're very much true believers in it whereas say with the tobacco industry it was very unlikely that the people pushing that corrupted research were unaware of what the, of that what they were doing but here you have probably mostly very sincere people who are not aware that they're engaging in a corruption. So that that degree of subtlety there makes it more difficult to communicate. But no, we did not do comparative studies against that. We identified a problem that we believed to be rampant in the fields we thought are, are taken by grievance studies approaches. And then we sought to first mimic and then understand and emulate and contribute to those problems by producing them ourselves and proving that we understand them by getting them published. So we were focused quite narrowly. This wasn't meant to be you know, a comparative study in any way. Uh, I do think that that would be an interesting research project for somebody to take up. Um, probably not me, but for somebody to take up, I think that would be interesting to do a comparative study of that kind of thing and make it more plain. I would be happy to consult on such a study, but my expertise isn't in doing the comparison. My expertise at this point is in understanding how grievance studies works.
0: Okay. Because I wouldn't think that the topics, or sorry, the, the fields that you put under grievance studies would be the only uh, forms of academia that are highly politicized. I mean, I have an international relations background of political mm-hmm. economics. So that would be one that's extremely politicized. Uh sure. Economics, for example? Um, Do you think you'd be able to extract the same or similar results if you were to do it on other fields?
1: I don't know. Uh, Possibly, possibly. You would not be able to exploit such an obvious bias rooted in identity, for example, but it is possible for somebody who understands the political biases that dominate within highly politicized fields to do something similar. I don't know enough about, say, economics to tell you, but my feeling is that if you see people being able consistently to publish a variety of opinions and there's a lot of political argumentation, then it doesn't really matter whether you can in a field like economics There's a lot of squish. Nobody really, I mean, it's very complicated. We don't have the tools presently to understand it at a highly rigorous level. So we have to use very simple models to understand things. Um, Even our most complex economic models miss a lot. And there's a lot of politics baked in, for example. But if you have a diversity there and you have a conversation and you have argument and discussion and debate, then in a squishy field, that's healthy even if it's highly politicized. If, on the other hand, you have only one set of views consistently pushing in one direction, one political direction is the only one that ever gets countenance, now you've got a particular problem. And that's what we saw in, in grievance studies and why we wanted to address grievance studies. We saw that only one set of political views, so it wasn't the politi- it being a politicized field so much as that only one set of political views was permissible. And our own papers exhibited this by exploiting that one set of views. And the peer reviewers confirmed it for us by consistently pushing our papers further in that direction than even we took them. We would write a paper and think that goes way too far. There's no way that they're going to take that. And then that would be exactly the part of the paper that they're like, this is intriguing. Could you take it further? Here's what you should do. Or, you know, you, one of our papers was about a white lesbian woman who came to h- study critical race theory and in the process learned to hate being white. She hated her own whiteness. And the paper was not accepted. It was a very difficult and not very good paper. Um, it was one of our more experimental ones. But the peer reviewers said, well, one of the big problems with this paper is that the author positions herself as a good white a white person who's become woke who understands so if you revise this paper for you know resubmission to another journal we would have had to have tailored around that problem to make sure that we down to we don't position the author as as a good white so it's pushing it further into that ideology where there's a right kind of being a white ally in a wrong kind where you're extracting your own benefit is the wrong kind. So we would have had to work around that, for example. And one of the things they wanted us to do was to make the person's personal journey, less central and to push forward. um, Scholars of color who had been the ones that were influential and talk mostly about them and through them, make them more visible. So again, you see in essence, being pushed further into that ideology rather than being pulled back and we never had a case where we were ideologically pulled back from uh, uh, activist identity politics left vision whereas if in economics you have you know people that push left wing stuff getting published people who publish right wing stuff getting published and you know you can kind of play to the biases of particular journals and get them in. But there's some healthy debate across the field and at conferences and such. That's less of a problem than if every there's I phrased it in some document that we wrote that in grievance studies, rather than seeing that you see a constant breeze blowing in one direction, which is further left, further into the social justice ideology. That's where you have a problem, where you now have a self-reinforcing system that's taking itself away from debate, discussion, um, and so on to speak very generally. I think people are pretty clever, but we're ultimately stupider than we are clever. We put out a lot of ideas. This is the human process and most of our ideas are wrong and we work collaboratively with one another through debate, through evidence, through discussion, through, um, you know, the whole dialectical process that we would consider to be robust and healthy academic work or even political work or whatever. And we, we try, we get closer to right answers by cutting away the wrong answers. I don't mean to get biblical, but there is that whole wheat and chaff thing going on there, right? You, you, you harvest the wheat, it's covered in chaff. You can't eat the chaff. You have to cut the chaff off. Well, the idea there is that we put forth ideas and there's often that kernel inside that's nutritious or valuable for society. It's a good idea. But you've got to cut the chaff off of it in order to get to that good idea because it's a bunch of junk attached to it. And the way you do that is by having robust debate that tries to – depending on what part of the philosophy of, of ideas that you're in, whether it's you're trying to falsify the idea, which is um, one approach. This is kind of the philosophy of science thing, but there's a slightly, slightly different one that's, uh, that's defeat the idea that's a a softer thing that's the difference between epistemology and doxastic research um so you're either trying to falsify or 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 defeat the idea as long as that's accessible then you probably are going to have healthy dialogue and dialectic that can work you toward functional solutions when you have a steady breeze that problematizes all views outside of a particular direction that the wind has to blow You've lost that and now you're you're in a, a, what you know if you want to call it from within, a, vir- a virtuous circle that takes you further and further and further into your rabbit hole and that's where you've got a problem. How do you tell if that's what's going on? Well, are all the papers pushing in one direction or is all the discussion going in one direction always or is it that there's amount of healthy debate? Are you allowed to criticize ideas or people's ideas or whatever or are there reasons why criticism is always discounted? For example, um, like we talked about earlier, if I were a black person who disagreed with the identity, am I just going to get called a coconut? If I were a woman who disagrees with feminism, am I going to say, am I going to be told that I'm a gender traitor who's just trying to extract patriarchal reward? Am I going to get, is my criticism going to be treated as proof of the problem that the ideology is trying to address? Because if that's the situation, now you're, you're into a problem. I don't know if... I don't know enough about economics. I don't know enough about any other field in particular that has political elements to it to know whether it's that degree of a problem. But if there is that kind of a problem, I hope somebody can d- can either expose it or address it in a way that starts leading to it being corrected. That's
0: the whole point. I've got no problems with uh, religious metaphors to describe phenomena. I think sure, sure. Quite quite often they're, they're closer, obviously it's not objective, but I think that the over-reliance on uh, rational thought is problematic in certain fields and with some individuals, um, which is something I think you've exposed, right?
1: Sure. It's possible that the the over-reliance on anything is by definition a problem. Um, I do tend to agree with Sam Harris where he said that no society has suffered by becoming too rational. Uh, The the issue here, and I don't want to – create an an illusion here. I don't think that what's going on in grievance studies is based on becoming too rational. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people who say that they've rejected religious ideology, but the, and then this, you know, focus on believing that they're, they're coming from a place of rationality is where the problem comes from. But like the essay that I'm working on now will demonstrate it's that they've actually replaced the mythological structure, the religious mythological structure which we could understand in a pre-modern sense with a postmodern mythological structure and are doing the same thing. So I don't believe that they're behaving from a place of rationality. Um, in fact, a lot of, Anti Enlightenment thought, including if you follow Stephen Hicks, he traces the postmodern phenomenon and thus the applied postmodern phenomenon all the way back to Kant. And Kant, of course, was the one who wrote the Critique of Pure Reason. And then what they call in this applied postmodernism what they call theory, which is a shortened uh, version of postmodern critical theory, not to be confused with the stuff rather the Frankfurt School. Um, you see that that critical there that's in postmodern critical theory comes from Kant's critique, and so this is all a, according to Hicks, who I think has probably got, has got his finger on it. This has all been an elaborate project, part parts of an elaborate project to resist the rational, falsified or falsifying defeasibility based process that leads us toward better answers in order to preserve access to what we might call special knowledge. As far as religious metaphors go, I, I just love metaphors. I think metaphors are extremely illuminating. Analogies and metaphors are extremely clarifying. Um, and religions, of course, are good repositories of a lot of of wisdom. The, they are, if you want to look at them from a purely secular view, at the very bottom, most level religions can be seen as uh document. Well, the, the, the writing, the religious writing, at least, or religious wisdom can be seen as a chronicling or documenting of large amounts of experimental and experiential guesses at how humans behave in human societies should be organized. So it's like pre-scientific sociology and psychology that evolved within a community context to solve the problems of that community at a very, very basic level. You can understand that religion probably served this function for human societies for as long as there have been human societies. So, um, the fact of the matter is, is that they will have gleaned a lot of wisdom in the process. And so their metaphors are often very good. Uh, I don't know that we need to fall prey to too much mythological thinking or noumenal thinking or something like that. Uh, and it's like, I don't know if you've read moral tribes by Jonathan green, Joshua green, my, my apologies. Um, but he talks about, and it's uh, similar to what Daniel Kahneman wrote in thinking fast and slow, that we have two modes of thought. One is very, to put it, you know, in, in clearer language, we could say fast and slow, but one is very intuitive and one is very, um, rational and precise. Uh, Joshua green in moral tribes calls that likens it to a camera. That's so his analogy. So you have automatic mode where you have to fiddle with the lens yourself and get everything just right. And then you can take really awesome pictures, but it takes a lot of work to get the exactly correct light and, and, and aperture opening and F stop. I'll, I i do not know all these things. Um, all the different parts, but then your camera also probably has auto mode where all you have to do is pick it up, point it, push the button and the camera guesses and does a pretty good job, but not like phenomenal, you know, world changing professional photography level most of the time. And so our intuitive approach, which is how we approach morality and and interacting with people is the fast version It's auto mode. And then the rational approach is manual mode. And so to kind of draw from Green's argument, which I think is really clever, um, we should operate in, in – he says we should operate in an auto mode, which is operating on intuition, especially in our social interactions, roughly 90% of the time. But when we have to answer a hard question, we need to go to manual mode. We need to think through it very rationally and apply that. So it's – It's one of these things where both situations are necessary. Both situations are called for and they're contextual and it's blurry which context you're in most of the time. So I don't like to say something like we're over reliant on a rational mind or a rational approach. But I would say that certain people who are rationalists or identify as being rationalists have a tendency to go into manual mode when they would have been way better off staying in auto.
0: I did buy your book. Uh, Why We Have Got Everything Wrong About God. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Everybody Is Wrong About God is the
0: title. Yeah. So I was a little bit confused on your approach because of what I know about what you've done here and now. You approach me now as someone that takes somewhat a William James-style approach to the utility of religion, and that's how you should look at it. Uh, Yet in the book, you seem to use a lot of strong language to criticize theology on the basis of its non-objective nature and things. So sure. have you, have your views somewhat evolved? I would say that, I mean, my views constantly evolve. Uh,
1: they're, they're constantly maturing and, and I'm, I'm constantly thinking about things and opening, opening up my view. Uh, I certainly, when I had written that did not have the metaphor of the fast and slow thinking, the, um, as, uh, the, uh, idea of, of auto mode versus manual. And, actually thinking about the issue of free will led me to think an awful lot about that way of thought. Um, and that's actually not a bad metaphor. I think that there are things that, that the rationalist mindset is one of those things that is incredibly important and that there's absolutely no need to delude ourselves or believe in mythological things that that are not, that are not, for, uh, objectively true about the universe in order to navigate it, but that we must recognize that we have a very intuitive moral and the social mind that has to be attended to. So I would actually say that that book, it was mostly a way to chronicle that two things. One, that religions are things that are there structures that gave people psychological and social tools to navigate that, um, that need to approach things in an auto mode with, with a lot of common ground and, uh, you know, very, I said tools, but there's, there's a lot more going on there. There's context, social context in particular, personal context, understanding who you are and so on that goes into all of it. Um, So one was to say that religions essentially are meeting psychological and social needs, and to the degree that they're doing so, so long as one keeps that caveat in mind that, you know, wait a minute, the rational mind can't accept this, so I'm not going to be able to conclude this is true, therefore everybody should believe it, but I can see it as being— useful in certain contexts to draw upon. It's a difference if you've ever played Dungeons and Dragons to really dork myself out between wisdom and intelligence. Um, You have to be able to, to operate and understand in both modes without losing track of what is and isn't the case. The other purpose of the book does tie directly into what I'm doing, which was ultimately that secular movements, in fact, I focused on atheism as a movement, can exhibit exactly the same religious phenomena because they speak to underlying human psychological and social needs that we're going to try to fill regardless most of the time. Uh, And the book is really kind of a call for people to try to find ways that don't rely upon religious mythologies to meet those needs so that we can avoid the problems that are ultimately down to religious extremism and uh, even the conventionality there, conventionalism, I should say, is the word, that comes up with any religious architecture. Um, yeah, we follow
0: patterns. So, I mean, you, you look at the, the highest pinnacle of scientific achievement in the popular sense at the moment, like Elon Musk. And, I mean, he's, he's just taken his firstborn Tesla and launched it into the heavens to look down upon us for the benefit of humanity. Do you think right. That, right, right uh do you, do you think that secular humanism is christian monotheism by other means
1: not in general but it, as it often comes up in specific um and there's a lot of connections between you know where you get into to very secular versions of unitarianism uh, that that look very much like what you're saying but i do think that what we have is underlying needs for for morality for purpose for social context for a feeling of control for for symbolism which is another means of making meaning in our lives and sharing meaning with one another so that we feel like we're on one communal page not in the sense of communism but rather in the sense of you know camaraderie and 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 social identity On the other hand, I don't think that we necessarily – like secular – the secular part of secular humanism indicates that we should always keep that rational part checking the intuitive part to remind us that, you know, the intuitive part wants access to special knowledge. It wants to have our symbols mean more than they do or mean something or the same thing to everybody. And the secular part says, no – if you look at secularism and not politically like separation of church and state, but philosophically, it says, no, your special knowledge is special, which technically means it's not the same thing as knowledge. And so if it's meaningful for you, great, you shall not be restricted in your practice of your special knowledge so long as it's not something like you know, human sacrifice that hurts people. But you cannot impress your special knowledge upon others and expect them, to accept it. And so, the secular part there is the key. And so, as I've cogitated on this over the years, I'm more and more comfortable now with the idea of, say, than I was in 2014 and 15 when I wrote that book, with people holding to a faith tradition. But I'm not okay. I I remain not okay with them applying the conventionalism aspect of it, which is the conventionalism is a a belief that it's it's a it's a degree of, of 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 accepting and and bending yourself to perceived authorities often traditional belief sets or the authorities that that legitimize those and then expecting in addition not only that you should have this view of of your special knowledge but also that other people should in other words that one's views moral views in particular should be conventional that's why it's called conventionalism. I don't think that that is, um, I still don't think that that's acceptable. That's where the line gets drawn. Like if you want to believe in, and whatever you want to believe in, you know, more power to you. Uh, if you expect other people to believe in it, just because it's important to you, then that's not how this works. You're when you go from the private sphere or the, the locally, you know, like your small local community to trying to make it more global or expecting other people to buy into it in order to believe that they're a good person or a worthy person or doing the right things in life. We've now we've got an issue. You've now gone against liberal principles and um, you're going against individualism in in favor of conventionalism, which is actually, I keep talking about conventionalism. Conventionalism is one of the uh, defining characteristics of authoritarianism. And this is why there are it, – it's its antithetical to liberal principles mm. to, to, to accept conventionalism. And it comes out of every religious type structure contains conventionalism because it's just part of what it is. If you believe mm. that these are fundamental metaphysical truths about the universe that everybody – has to believe, and those are t- or, sorry that if you believe that the fundamental medical, metaphysical principles about the universe and those are tied to what it means to be moral, to be a good person, and use the universal metaphysical principle tied to morality means that conventionalism is going to evolve, that you think other people should embrace these ideals,
0: then there's an issue. Okay, all right, James. Well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It seems like we've got a lot more to talk about. And so I'd like to maybe Yeah, they got a little high one day.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. A, little, a little bit off that. track.
0: But maybe maybe after another five or six episodes you can uh, go for another cycle and we can, right, we'll uh, we about can about get it. on to some update ourselves on all of this. But uh, just quickly, what's your Twitter handle? It's at @conceptualjames. I would spell it,
1: but I'll mess it up. So it's the usual spelling of conceptual, the usual spelling of James, no space.
0: All right then, well, thank you very much for joining and uh, we will speak again sometime. Yeah, great, thank you very much.